But God, I thank you for these men. I pray that you would bless us as we seek to know Christ better by studying the full breadth of your scriptures. Uh, Lord, I pray for each of us. We, we are going to need your help. We need your strength, your, your spirit to lead us and help us as we endeavor to climb this mountain together. I thank you for these men. I'm so excited. I can't wait to see what you choose to do through us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, at, you know, it's never enough time for the companies on the Sunday night. It's just never, uh, which I hope then that time that we do have is a touch point time. And either by email, by telephone, or by face-to-face -face meeting, build that relationship through the week so that you don't have to catch one another up. You already know what's going on in, in your lives. A uh, couple more things, just housekeeping things. Uh, number one, those binders that you got, those are yours for the low price of $10. And you have to buy them, except uh, our new guys don't need to buy them. So there's two. I'd like to welcome Justin and Mark. Thank you for coming. Uh, you don't have to buy those. We'll buy them for you. But the rest of you, you are on the hook for it. And, and that includes you, Nathan Long. You've been here long enough. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, $10. I need someone to collect $10 from all the men. Okay, Lyndon, that makes sense. Yeah, Lyndon, you do that. <laughs> Lyndon's our treasurer. Uh, and so I'm going to be asking for a reimbursement because I bought those. I think they come to about $12 each, so South Shore is going to be supplementing you $2 a person for that. Okay, hopefully we're out of a spending freeze soon. Uh, second to last thing before I ch do check your, your homework is setting up. I need companies to, um, to sign up, one company a week to come in a half an hour early and set this up and then put the sanctuary back. So we won't do that now, but actually maybe Jay, could you, do you have an extra piece of paper? Because you printed off the notes, right? Oh, if you have paper, do a little, a little, uh, spreadsheet with the dates uh, and then we'll just before you go sign up for the dates that your company can do that okay all right let's check the uh the homework so this is only the bible reading there's a couple of men that have a pass mark has a pass justin has a pass wayne has a pass because they just decided that they would be a part of it but the rest of you i'm curious to know so mark did you read uh, genesis matt Hayden, and Scott Black did, which is good. Blair Clank, Don Sheffer, Yosip, Jay, Nate, yeah, good. And uh, Duncan, Ryan, Wayne, oh uh, no, you get a pass. Lyndon, Blair Hansen, uh, Max, Ben. Peter, Christopher, okay, that'll, that'll do for this week. Tom finished, he emailed me. Uh, Scott Hansen, Dave, Scott, I'll give it to you, okay. Guys, that's great.
that's one of the longest, right? It gets a little bit longer when we get to First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, but that's about that's about as much as we're expecting per week. So it's a bit it's a bit much, but it's crucial. Very very good. Uh, Mark Mark ha- has an app, a, bi- a Bible reading app that he says is really good. I would like you to share with the guys in case you don't have a Bible reading app yet. So go ahead. Yeah, I highly recommend it as well. They have animals bleeding in the background, babies crying, rain falling. It's, it's got all the sound effects. It does bring the Bible to life. It's worth the money if you have to buy it, or if you have scribed, uh, you can get it for free. Uh, yeah, Scott. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, he's the Messiah. Okay, today we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis. So let's just pray. uh, Pray for this opportunity. Obviously, this is an epic book that I have. I got two watches on, just to be sure. I have less than an hour and a half to go through the whole book. So I'm I'm not going to be able to touch on everything. Some things are just going to have to go over way too quick. But the, the whole point is to build a biblical theology. That is, what is the big picture? What are the 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 themes and the threads that start in Genesis and weave their way all the way to the book of Revelation. So as we're going through, we're going to be reading the Bible as one epic. And we're going to see how it all fits together, even though it was written over uh, a thousand years from beginning to end. And even though it has some 40 authors, God is the ultimate author, and he's trying to tell us a unified story, a unified history. And that all starts here in the book of Genesis. So let's just pray for our time, and then I'll get started. God, I thank you for this opportunity. I pray, please help me. Help me to uh, touch on the high points, and I pray for your Holy Spirit to, to instruct us as we read And there's going to be things that I say that I don't get into, but by your Spirit, I pray that you would give these men a thought or uh, an idea and that they would follow it up after the fact. So I pray that you would help us to make this a supernatural, spiritual time together as we bask in the glory of your Word because we know that it points to your Son shows us what you've done for us and points us to salvation. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. The book of Genesis, this is it from start to finish, is really two main parts. The first part is what you might call the primordial history. That's the first 11 chapters. And then the second part is chapter 12 through 50, which is the patriarchal history. Those are the two main sections in the book of Genesis. 
And linking them together in the middle is chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. These three chapters are, are the, are, sorry, these three verses are the verses on which all of salvation history turns. So you have uh, chapters 1 through 11, and what we see there is the repeated failure of humanity after the fall to, to save itself. God gives a number of fresh starts after Adam and Eve sin, and they continue to fail. Noah fails, and then we see a, a, a second epic fail with the Tower of Babel. As, as humanity just does not understand what it means to be a creature made in God's image. And so cha chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, introduces God into the story. And basically what God says in these verses is it can't depend on you. It cannot depend on the ability of the human race to save itself. I am going to have to step into human history and make a series of unconditional promises so that the salvation of the human race does not depend one bit on humanity's ability to be good enough, to be righteous enough, to save itself. It's going to depend entirely, says God, on my character, on my promises, on my grace, on my ability to bring it to pass. So we see in these verses... Verses 1 to 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the gospel. Eleven chapters of human failure. And then this. I want you to notice something about these verses. Does God ever say, I will bless you if you're good enough? Does he ever say, um, I will make your name great if you honor my name? Does he say, I will make you a blessing if you bless me and you bless others? He doesn't. There's no conditionality in these promises. These are entirely unconditional. God says, no matter what you do, Abraham, no matter how good you are or how evil you are, no matter how good your descendants are or how wicked they are, I am going to do this. As we see when you get into the New Testament, I, I'm thinking especially of the book of Hebrews, uh, the, the gospel is rooted on, depended upon, God's goodness, God's grace, God's promises, God's election, God's initiative, God's action, and we are the recipients. That's right here, which is really good news because when you get to chapters 12 through 50 in the book of Genesis, the hope of the world hangs on the family of Abraham and they're a total mess. But that's the hope of the world. Because of these verses where God says, I'm going to do this. The, the world's chance, the world's hope for blessing falls to you, Abraham, and your descendants. In these promises, we see oh, we see the promise of a great nation, or a great name. Oh, no, a great nation, that means descendants. Seed, we're going to talk about seed quite a lot. What is seed? It's sperm. Seed. Sperm is a big deal in the Bible. I'm going to make you a great nation through your sperm. 
and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great, a great name. That's number two. Seed, name. Number three, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so the hope of the world hangs on this family. I missed one at the very beginning, the land. So land, seed, name, blessing. See that? I missed that. Sorry. Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to the land that I will show you. Land, nation, that's seed, name, and blessing. These are, the, these are the promises of God. This is the gospel. And if we don't say it, we're going to say it a lot over the next 16 weeks, but the promised land, the land that God promises to Abram, is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. It's a down payment for the new cosmos that God is going to create. And, and the writer of Hebrews knows this, right? He says that Abraham wasn't looking for the land that God promised him. He was looking for an eternal city whose designer and builder is God. Abraham understood that the land that God gave him in Israel was just the beginning. It was the down payment of the heavenly city in a new heavens and a new earth. So we're going to see macro typology. Macro typology are these these pictures in the Old Testament of a greater reality. The, the promised land is one of those. So I can't get into all of that right now, but that's just a teaser. This is the hinge of salvation history. 11 chapters of failure, then 12 through 50, we see a messed up family that God is going to work through by his grace unconditionally to save the world. So as we zoom out, what we, I want you to see next Look at the microstructure of the book of Genesis. So that was the macrostructure, the primordial history from creation to the Tower of Babel and the call of Abram. Then the patriarchal history, which is from Abram all the way to the death of Jacob and Joseph in Egypt. And in the middle, the hinge, that's, ma that's the macrostructure. Now look at the microstructure. What do you notice about it? With the exception of the first chapter, these are the generations of. These are the generations of. These are the generations of. So you have the generations of the heaven and the earth, and in the middle there you have said, this is the book of the generations of Adam in, in chapter 5-1. Then you have from chapter 6-9 through 9-29, these are the generations of Noah. Then from 10-1 to 11-9, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Then in 11-10 through 26, these are the generations of Shem. And then from 11-27 to 25-11, that's one quarter of the book. I'm going to make a big deal of that when we get to it. These are the generations of Terah. That's Abram's father. Then 25, 12 to 18, these are the generations of Ishmael. Then 25, 19 to 35, 29, these are the generations of Isaac. Then 36, 1 to 8, and 36, 9 to 37, 1, we get a double. These are the generations of Esau. Twice. I'll just admit right now, I don't know why Esau gets two. I don't, if, you, if you come up with a reason, I'd love to hear it. I don't know, but it's there, so I, I tell it to you. And then the last uh, section, which is the Joseph novella we often know about, the story of Joseph and his brothers. These are the generations of Jacob. So what you have is the names of the fathers and then the story of their family and their children. Terah covers the life of Abraham and Isaac. Again, I don't know why. Why don't we have these are the generations of Abram? I don't know. But th that's the microstructure. Now, what do you notice about that? The Bible 
in Genesis, and I would say the Bible in total, but we get it very pronounced in the book of Genesis, is a genealogy. It's not a book with genealogies in them. The Bible is a genealogy. Well, what genealogy of what? That's what we're going to find out as we go through the book. I think I'll, I'll spoil it for you. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. From Adam to Jesus Christ. The Bible is primarily a genealogy. How did we get from the first man to the man who saves us? That's the story of the Bible. Which is amazing. And if you're adopted into Christ's family, this is your family genealogy. You've been adopted into this genealogy. So when you're thinking about the Bible, don't think, oh man, brother, I got another genealogy that I need to skip. You need to see that the genealogy of the Bible is the backbone of the Bible, which is why Matthew and Luke, well, Matthew starts with a genealogy and Luke very strategically places a genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam in Luke 4 after the baptism. They weren't just filling pages. They understood that the Bible was a genealogy and is a genealogy that takes us from our forefather Adam to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's amazing to me that God inspired Moses to recognize that at this point in salvation history in 1400 B.C. That's 3,400 years ago. Before Jesus existed, Moses understood, inspired by God, that he was writing a genealogy of the salvation of the world. Amazing. Let's take a look at this genealogy. We start with in the beginning. And in the beginning, you have creation. I just don't have time to do anything about creation right now, except to, for you to notice that God created in seven days. We start with formlessness and emptiness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Now, notice days one through three. God creates form, light, ocean, sky, earth, and vegetation. And on days four through six, God fills the form that he had created with sun, moon, and stars, sea creatures and birds, land creatures and humans. And only after that is the tohu vabohu, that's the Hebrew for the formlessness and the emptiness. Now that's been reversed. When the formlessness and the emptiness is reversed, you finally have rest. And the seventh day of creation is a day of creation. Though God didn't work, it's a part of creation week because that is the climactic reversal of tohu vabohu, the chaos and the darkness, the darkness and the hovering. Now what you have is rest and blessing. And so at the beginning of our story, and when I say story, I know it's history. I'm not trying to say it's not history. But at the beginning of our history, we have a good universe created by a good God, and everything is at peace and rest. And God says emphatically, it is good. Let's zoom out now. It stays good only for two chapters. If we're going to understand the Bible in any ma macro sense, we have four chapters in, in all of the Bible where we see that it is good. And in fact, in Genesis 1 and 2, creation is good. In Revelation 21 and 22, it is glory, which is an increase. We're not going back to good. We're going forward to glory, and glory includes that which is good. And the Bible, then, is the story. How do we get from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20? 
That is all of the history of humanity where it is not good. And in the middle of that history, of God's history to save the human race, is the one who saves us. In the middle of our sin and corruption and death and darkness is the cross. And it is the cross that creates a bridge from Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 21 and 22. And so if you want to understand the Bible, the beginning of the Bible is good. Then it's a mess. In the middle of our mess, you have the Gospels. In the middle of the Gospels, you have the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus where he redeems us. But he doesn't just take us to glory right away. We're still living in the fallen world. But we're going somewhere. We're going to glory. And so all of those books that I've included in there, those are all the books of the Bible, All of those books are telling the story of how do we get from Genesis 2 to Revelation 21. That's the Bible. We go down here. The other thing that we learn in the beginning is that there is one God and He created the universe. There's not many gods. God wasn't forced to create. It wasn't an epic battle between different gods, competing gods. There's one God. He didn't need to create anything, but he decided to, and he created it, and he created it good. And at the zenith of his good creation, he made us. Humanity is special. Anyone who says that we're just another animal is is so far off We are not just another animal. In fact, we were created for a time just a little lower than the angels, but we are going to be crowned with glory above them. We, the destiny of the human race, far exceeds even the angelic host. We are the greatest thing that God has created. There is no one and no no thing that competes with humanity. And this is validated when God became a man. God did not become an angel. God did not become a cow. God did not become an Asheroth pole. God did not become a building or a Buddha. He became a man. Now that automatically says that there's something special about humanity because when God became a man, he forever bonded to what it means to be God, us. For God to be God, it includes the fact that God is a man. Now, the Father's not a man, and the Spirit's not a man, but the second person of the Trinity is a man, even while he is God. That's amazing. So in Genesis, we find out that we're created in the image of God, and then we find out that God became the perfect image of himself in the person, the man, Jesus Christ. And in Colossians we find out that he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now, we are made in the image of God, but God now is the perfect image of God in his humanity. He's the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So in Genesis, we have God and we have the image of God. In Jesus, we have God who is the image as a man. And he brings the two together. We are the high point of God's creative act. Validated through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Both creator and image bearer. The perfect man. That, I don't know that we'll ever fully grasp how awesome that is. We have to keep moving. Zoom back out here. So that's in the beginning. Creation. Everything is good. 
humanity is the zenith, the, the, the top of the mountain as far as God's creative genius. Throughout the Old Testament, what you're going to see is this tension. Is it a son of David who's going to save the world or is it God? And the Old Testament never resolves that. It's only in the birth of Christ where we see, oh, it's both. So just watch for that. Let's go in here. The first in the generations of. Uh, this takes us from Genesis 2-4 to Genesis 6-8. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It's interesting that the Bible doesn't say these are the generations of Adam. Until 5-1. And I, I don't know why, except I will surmise that that superscription, this is the book of the generations of Adam, not these are the generations of Adam, but this is the book of the generations of Adam. That's about Genesis, sure. But I think it's not placed at the head of this section because that superscription stands for the whole Bible. This is the book of the story of Adam. Or put another way, this is the book of the story of humanity. And so God just doesn't put that in the, at the front of this section because it, he wants it to stand at the head of the whole book. You also see that it, it's after Genesis 4, which we're going to get to in a minute. And that's where people begin to call on the name of the Lord. So now God's going to begin to redeem Adam. So these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It starts with day six. I've already talked about this. All of chapter two, it's not a second creation account. It is a zoom in on day six. So we find out that God created humanity not as a, a single gender, although our culture would say we are just one gender or choose your gender or be fluid or whatever, but God is very intentional. In order to create humanity in his image, he needs men and women. We are equal image bearers of God, but we are not the same. You're either a man or you're a woman, and functionally, that your role will be decided by your gender. And your gender is decided by God, not by you. We are men and women. Men, and we're going to see this as we go through, we're the leaders. We're the teachers. Women were created to be our helpmates. And that's not derogatory in any way. It's a high calling Woman is created to be man's equal. But we need to lead. We live in a culture of abdication. We need to lead in the church and in the home. And so that's what Frontline is all about. Moving on, by Genesis 3, we know that the devil comes in, possesses a snake, a serpent, convinces the woman to take the, fr uh, the forbidden fruit. She gives it to her husband. We see that God set up a particular order. God, man, woman, animal kingdom, universe. In the fall, we have an animal turns the woman against the man against God. A complete inversion of God's created order. It's no small thing to invert God's created order. We don't get to just decide, well, I don't feel like leading. God created man to lead, to have authority, to, to carry the burden of headship, and, and, and not to be abusive or coercive, but to be a Christ-like head in the home and in the church. And when Adam abdicated, the fall is his fault. It's his fault. It's not the woman's fault. The woman was deceived. The man was disobedient. 
And when Adam was disobedient, the result was exile. One of the great themes of the Bible is exile, and it starts in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life, but when they sinned, they are exiled to the east of the Garden of Eden. I want you to burn that in your mind because we're going to be talking about it all through the Torah. The story of the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is how do we get back to Eden? Because God put, a cherub, uh, put cherubim to guard the, the tree of life. Cherubim are deadly angels. Their, their whole job is to kill anyone who gets close to them. How are we going to get back there? Because we've been exiled in Adam to the east. And that's really important. Emphasize that now. You'll see why that's important. We are, we are exiled to the east, which means we want to go west. Exile, a great theme. The other great theme of, of the Bible is slavery, which we're going to see next week. I, I'm not highlighting it here because we're going to highlight it next week. When Adam sinned, he enslaved us to sin, and he exiled us from God's presence. The Bible is a story of how do we get out of exile, and how are we liberated from sin, slavery to sin. Moving on. This story is going to be resolved by, through an epic battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. I think this is the theme verse for the book of Genesis. I would say it's the theme verse for the whole Bible. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's so much we could say about this, but we're going to watch it unfold in the Bible. And, and this is what I want you to notice. There's going to be a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In 1 John, we're told you're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. So this is not about biology. This is about which category do you fall in. And, and why do we have wars and rumors of wars? It's because there's a battle between the, the children of the woman and the children of the serpent. And humanity is divided into those two categories. And we see it immediately in Genesis 4. That's what Genesis 4 is all about, Cain and Abel. We see in the very first generation, these are the first two human beings conceived and born into the world, and they're at war with one another. One is the seed of the woman, the other is the seed of the serpent. And so what you see in this chapter is, is a picture of all of human history, the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we know that in this chapter, the seed of the serpent kills the seed of the woman. They're, they're both Eve's children. But these are not, this is about categories of humanity. Now, this is interesting. As we follow through, we see that this battle started with Adam and the serpent. And it continues with Cain and Abel slash Seth. Seth replaces Abel as the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman, just to clarify, is the line that's going to get us to Jesus Christ, the true seed of the woman, who bruises his heel when he crushes the head of the serpent on the cross. But this battle is playing out between Noah and the Nephilim, Shem and Japheth and Ham, through Abraham and Nahor and Lot, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Judah and the nations, I would say. You see it with Moses and Pharaoh, David and Saul. And climactically, Jesus and Judas. And I didn't even include them all, but, but I want you to see there is God is intentionally in Genesis pairing off brothers. One is the seed of the woman. The other is the seed of the serpent. And this is a battle between God and the devil. Now we know that it's not a fair fight. That even though there are Cains who kill Abel's, 
Abel will win. And he's a perfect picture of Christ, slayed by the serpent, his brother. And the blood of Abel cried out to God, just as the blood of Jesus Christ cries out to God on our behalf. And Abel will be raised in bodily glory at the resurrection. This is the story of the Bible. Two paths. We go on, and I've already made this point. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then we see it. And I just want to show you, I'm not going to show you every genealogy in Genesis, but I want to show you that the Bible is a genealogy. It is not a book with genealogies. And so right there we get from Adam to Noah. Enoch is the seventh generation. It, very interesting. Seventh generation, we're not told that he dies. He was and then he was no more. Was he raptured up to heaven? I don't know. But that's saying something. The seventh generation after Adam, God is making a point through Enoch, death will not win. My Sabbath generation is caught up to be with me and death doesn't win there. That's a picture that death will not conquer those who belong to God, those who walk with God. That's the second subsection, the generations of heaven and earth. Now we go into the third. The gen these are the generations of Noah, which take us from Genesis 6-9 to 9-29. I don't probably need to tell you about uh, the flood. This is a real historical account. God saw the wickedness of humanity and uncreated them. So what's amazing is God created and it was good. And then you have creation in, in Genesis 1. In Genesis 6 and 7, you have uncreation, and then you have recreation. And this is, again, a picture of the whole Bible. God is just setting up all the major themes in Genesis. Why? Because at the end, according to 2 Peter 3, there's no flood again, but God is going to uncreate the universe, judge the living and the dead, after he raises us from the dead. Then he's going to recreate the universe, a resurrection of this universe. And he's going to recreate it in such a quality that he's then going to take heaven, the throne room of God, and put it on earth. And then he's going to fill this recreated, glorified universe, the new heavens and the new earth, with the fullness of his glory and dwell with us in that forever. And that's a picture of, of Noah and the ark. The ark is Christ. By faith, Noah gets into the ark. He brings the animals with him. God destroys the world, not totally, but by a flood. And then he recreates the world. And the people that were in the ark get out of the ark. The animals that were in the ark get out of the ark. And it's a fresh start. It's a picture of the new heavens and the earth. The ark is Christ. We are one of the eight. If we are in Christ, we get into him as Noah got into the ark. And the ark carried Noah and the animals and his family through the judgment. And they came out on the other side. So if we are in Christ, we will not be destroyed through the final judgment of fire. We will be carried in Christ through the final judgment, and we will come out like Noah into a new heavens and a new earth, and we will dwell with God forever. That's awesome. That's the gospel. And because of time, that's all I have to say about it. But think on these things. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Remember, after Noah, they had to start over. And that I said this morning, you get twice. 
the Adamic mandate. Adamic, ick, on the end of Adam. This is, this is like kind of a snobby way of saying the mandate given to Adam. The Adamic mandate. It now becomes a, a Noachic mandate. Noah with a k, ick. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Twice. Fresh start. He is a new Adam. And so his three sons repopulate the world. Ham goes down to Africa. Shem is in the Middle East. And Japheth goes up to Asia and Europe. And from these three men, we have all of us. So, you know, you've heard of anti-Semitism. That's anti-Shemism. And what's the promise given to Abram? Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. Abram is a Shemite. Anyone who's anti-Semitic is cursing the line of the Messiah and will be cursed. And then the end of the primordial history has the Tower of Babel. This is, to be honest with you, I haven't delved to the depth of what this is all about, except I do know this. That humanity wanted to be its own master. They didn't want to spread out fill the earth, subdue it. They didn't want to be God's vice regents. They wanted to reach up into heaven, perhaps to overthrow God. So God says, no, I'm having none of that. I'm in charge here. And so he scatters them over the face of the earth. Which brings us to the generations of Shem. Again, most people would say this is super boring Bible reading, or if you're in the Bible experience, you're like, oh, just get me through the list of names. But look at what the Bible accomplishes in this chapter. We get from Shem, the son of Noah, all the way to Abram, who is, remember, the hinge of salvation history, where God now begins to say, hey, the human race is hopelessly lost. I'm not going to destroy the world again before I save the world because we just start over and fail again and fail again and fail again. And so, through the line of Shem, we get to Abram, and through Abram, we get the gospel and the unconditional promises of God that says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a nation, seed. I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to bless the descendants of Japheth and Ham and Shem through you. So this is really important. Although it is a bit dry to read. That's uh, the end of the primordial history. Now we get into the generations of Terah. This is one quarter of the book of Genesis. Now, whenever something is the one quarter of anything, it's important. A and God inspired the book of Genesis. And he says, for one quarter of the book of Genesis, I'm going to talk about Abraham's life. Which means the life of Abraham is really important. And yet, I don't know if you notice this, it's the most peculiar life. Like, why are we hearing about all this stuff? Like, harems and wars and Melchizedek makes a cameo appearance. Lot and all of his troubles and Eliezer of Damascus is an heir and he's not. And then Sarah gives Abram Hagar to sleep with and Ishmael is born and all of this weird uh, family dynamic that comes about with that. What in the world is that in the Bible for? And why does it take up a quarter of the book of Genesis? Well, I'm going to tell you. I believe that the life of Abraham is 
the entire story of the Bible in typology. What's typology? Typology is a picture of something else. So blueprints is a typology. If you have a blueprints, blueprints are a typology of the building. The life of Abraham, I believe, are the blueprints of all of salvation history. I don't have time. This, we could spend hours talking about this. So I'm going to open the door for you. I'm going to open the door for you to consider these things. And, and then you have to mull it over and we can talk more about it. I want to start with what seems to be the most clear. And that is that the near sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22 seems to be a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus. Let's just start there. The very fact that it's Mount Moriah where Isaac was to be sacrificed, that's where the Temple Mount is. That's a stone's throw from where Jesus was crucified. And, and you have a father who is willing to sacrifice his son. That sounds a lot like God the Father willing to sacrifice God the Son. Yes, love it. Take your son, your only son. What about Ishmael? Well, forget about him. Your only son. The son whom you love. It's Abraham throughout his life, we're going to see, is a picture of God the Father. Sarah is a picture of true Israel. Isaac is a picture of Jesus Christ. Let's fill in some more. Uh, it's very hard to argue with this because it's in the book of Galatians that Abraham begets Ishmael by Hagar. Paul says in Galatians 4, 21 to 25, that Hagar and Ishmael are a picture of the old covenant at Sinai. I'm not making that up. That's the inspired word of God, which means that Ishmael then becomes a picture of apostate Israel. We're going to see that. So Sarah is true Israel. Ishmael becomes a picture of apostate Israel. Galatians also says that Isaac and Sarah, Sarah is the, he the heavenly Jerusalem, and her son Isaac is the child of promise. And you are, you are like Isaac, sons of promise. And the ultimate son of promise is Jesus Christ. We're only sons of promise because of Jesus Christ. So he is the, the fulfillment of Isaac. That's in Galatians 4, 26 to 27. Paul goes on and he says, cast out the slave woman and her child. which is a picture of God cutting off apostate Israel. Galatians 3, 4, 30 to 31 and Romans eleven twenty five. God cut off some branches of apostate Israel and he grafted in Gentile branches. Now why would God cast out the slave woman and her son? We find out, and this is, if you go back in Genesis, just a few verses, Ishmael is laughing at Isaac doesn't mean laughing. It, that's a play on his, uh, on his name because Yitzhak means laughter. It means he is Isaacing Isaac, but the, the force of it is he's persecuting him. That's what happens in the life of Christ. Apostate Israel begins to persecute the true son of promise and the other sons and daughters of promise who are grafted in both Jews and Gentiles because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, if Israel is going to persecute the church, cast out Israel. We keep going. 
It's always peculiar to me that Abraham, this great man of the faith, puts his wife in two harems. Now just look at how this falls in the life of Abraham. The first harem is in chapter 12. Chapter 12, 1 to 3, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to to make your name great. Well, the great nation depends on seed. So what does he do? He takes his wife, who's got to receive his seed in order to become a great nation, and he jeopardizes the promise by putting her in a harem. And then he does it again. Puts her in Abimelech's harem, some Gentile to the east. That makes a lot more sense, though, if you see that his life historical though it is, is a picture of what God the Father is doing with his people. See, God sends his people into a harem in slavery in Egypt, just as Sarah was in an Egyptian harem. And then he sends his people again into a harem in the Babylonian captivity. And in both instances, it seems like the promises of God that God would make a great nation through Abraham are in jeopardy. But God protects the messianic line both in Sarah's harem experience and Israel's harem experience. In both instances. And and if you just chart out the life of Abraham, they fall exactly in the right place. Let's add one more. Before Sarah goes into, Babel, uh, into Abimelech's harem, before Israel goes into exile in Babylon, you have Isaac's birth promised by these angelic visitors. In the same way, before the Babylonian captivity, God sends pre-exilic prophets to say, judgment is coming, but after that, a son is going to be given to you. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And you will call him Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. And the extent of his kingdom will know no end. And it wasn't just Isaiah that promised this coming messianic, uh, messianic person to, to save Israel. But, it, but these pre-exilic prophets are promising this, and then God sends his people to Babylon. It's a lot like Abraham hearing that through Sarah, the the promised son is going to come, and then Abraham puts his wife, who's going to bring this promised child into the world, into another man's harem. But what does God say through Jeremiah? I'm going to protect you. You're not going to be harmed. You're not going to be touched. You're not going to be violated in Babylon And what does he do to Abimelech? He makes it impossible for him or anyone else in all of Abimelech's house to violate Sarah. God protects the messianic line in both cases. Then we have back here, which means Genesis 12, 1 to 3, which I've made a big deal about. When God calls Abraham, what we actually see is God calling himself. If you read those verses carefully, he's actually not calling Abraham to anything in some ways. He's saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for you. So that brings us up to to the cross. Now there's details I skipped over because of time, but I think I put them in your notes. There's more. If you just look at every detail of Abraham's life, it's the whole story of the Bible. Now, what about this? After Abraham nearly sacrificed Isaac, Abraham sends his messenger to get a wife for Isaac. Now, if Isaac is a type of Christ, 
then the wife of Isaac is a type of the church, which means Rebekah is a picture of the church, the bride of Christ, which means that this, this sending of his servant to get a bride for his son is God the Father sending out in the power of the Holy Spirit, lo, I am with you, even unto the end of the age. Go, make disciples, baptize Teach them everything I have commanded you to obey. The Great Commission. Go and get a bride for my son. And so the church goes like that messenger went in the power of the Holy Spirit to get a bride for Christ. Now you see the whole trinity there. The Father sends the Spirit to get a bride for his son. In the life of Abraham. And I love this. Isaac consummates his marriage with Rebekah in Sarah's tent Sarah's tent who's Sarah Sarah is the true Israel and Christ's marriage to the church is consummated in the covenant God made with Israel there's the data what do you think pretty awesome this sending for Rebecca I don't have time for this, but I just plug it for you. You get a repeated story of, of a man going to a well. The messenger finds a bride for Isaac at a well. There's eight plot points that get repeated twice in a row. Me makes for boring reading, but God seems to think it's important. He wants us to know this story. Then in Exodus 2, he repeats those eight plot points when Moses sits by a well and marries Zipporah. John 4 now. Jesus is in Samaria. And he goes and he sits at a well. And a woman comes to the well and says, or Jesus says, uh, you should have asked me for some water. In Genesis 24, the double story in Exodus 2, this is a betrothal scene between Isaac and Rebekah between Moses and Zipporah, which means that in John 4, this is a betrothal scene between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, which means that she is a picture like Rebecca of the church. The church is five times married, living in sin. And Jesus says, I want you for my bride. The word of God. Moving on. These are the things you need to know. Go back now and read that one quarter of the book of Genesis. Abraham is God the father. Sarah is the new covenant, the true Israel. Hagar is the old covenant, apostate Israel. Isaac is the Messiah and those who are in the Messiah. Ishmael is apostate Israel along with his mother. Rebekah is the church. And then... We get to the end of uh, Abraham's life and all of a sudden Keturah shows up and all of a sudden this, this man who couldn't have children has a plethora of children. Why? Well, because Abraham's life is a picture of what God is doing in salvation history and God has other children. Not in covenant, but God is the God of all nations. Just as Abraham is the father of Keturah's children. One thing, and you can help me out with this, I don't know what to do with Lot. He has to fit, though. I just don't know. So there's a challenge for you. 
That's the generations of Terah. Now let's go and look at the generations of Ishmael. What I just told you makes this really interesting because Ishmael, we're told, is multiplied into 12 princes. Remember, Ishmael is a picture of apostate Israel, which means Ishmael's life has to mirror Israel's life. The destiny for Ishmael has to be a mirror image of the destiny of the nation of Israel, and we see it there, 12 princes. That's not a coincidence. And who comes from Ishmael but Islam, which means that Islam is the fulfillment of apostate religion. Joseph can tell you all about that later. The similarities are, are crushing. So we have the, the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. True Israel, the church against Islam. Isn't that church history? God has his. Satan has his. That's human history. Moving on, the generations of Isaac. I want to go through this very quickly. There's so much here. Isaac puts his wife, Rebekah, into a harem. Now, if you're following the typology, Rebekah is the church, which means that Jesus Christ puts the church into a Babylonian captivity or into exile. What does Peter say? Writing to all of you in exile. We are in exile because this world's not our home. We are citizens of heaven in exile in this world. Isaac puts Rebekah into a harem. Jesus Christ puts his bride, the church, into exile. For how long? I don't know. It's been 2,000 years. But, but, just as Sarah came out of Egypt with all kinds of riches, just as Israel came out of Egypt with all kinds of riches, and just as Sarah came out of Abimelech's harem uh, with all kinds of riches, and just as uh, Israel came out of Babylon and was reestablished in Jerusalem, Rebekah came out of exile. The church will come out of exile. The exile is not going to be forever. There is an end to this. which brings us to the story of Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. We're going to see in the preaching of Romans 9 coming up very soon, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Why? Well, that's God's election. And you have there the dynamic of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent playing uh, off in, in the family of the promised family. But on the human level, because Esau despises birthright, he came in and he was hungry. He was a man of appetite. He wasn't going to die. But there was his brother Jacob cooking up a really nice stew. Esau came in and was hungry. He says, I'm so hungry. Give me some of that red, red. Like it's, in the Hebrew, it's like grunting. Hungry me, red, red. Like, and Jacob, who's dwelling in tents and all academic, looks. He says, well, I'll give you some of this, but going to cost you. Esau was the firstborn. His birthright was the promise given to Abraham and Isaac, and he sold it for soup. That's what it's like when anyone trades eternal glory, resurrection from the dead, the inheritance coming to us for this world. It's like giving away all the blessings of a birthright for a bowl of soup. There's not enough stuff. 
when God compares what he's going to give us in the new heavens and the earth with the most lavish lifestyle in this, li in this age, to God it's like a bowl of soup. Don't make that trade. So we know that um, Jacob wanted the birthright, and he wanted the blessing. So he deceived his father. He dressed up like Esau, right? He, he had his mom make makes, uh, some game for, for Isaac because, okay, I, let me back up. You probably know this story, but Isaac wanted to bless Esau. Isaac loved Esau. Why did I Isaac love Esau? Anyone remember? He was a good hunter, and Isaac loved the taste of the game, the wild game. Why? Well, because there was a day not too far back in his past where he was tied up by his father and put on an altar and his dad raised a knife to kill him and there was a ram caught in the thickets. And so his father unleashed him from the altar, took the ram and burned it. Maybe they ate some. From that moment on, Isaac likes the taste of wild game. He loves the substitutionary atonement prefigured in the ram brought about through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Remember, uh, Abraham said to Isaac, when Isaac said, what are we going to sacrifice? God himself will provide the lamb, but God provides a ram, and then John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God, as if to answer, this is the lamb that Abraham prophesied God would provide. The ram isn't fulfilling what Abraham said Jesus is. But Isaac, who is in the line of the woman, the line of the Messiah, loves the taste of that substitutionary atonement. And his son Esau is a great hunter. And so Isaac, not knowing that he's not in the line, wants to bless him. Instead, Jacob kills a goat, serves it to his father, gets the blessing because his dad's old and blind, runs away for, for his life, gets the blessing. And then he goes to Bethel and he has a vision and there's a ladder that goes up to heaven. Jesus Christ said to Nathaniel, right? I am the ladder. You will see angels ascending and descending on me. This is the gateway to heaven. And Jacob was promised that he would make it to heaven by grace through faith. Later in Jacob's life, after he's married two women and acquired two concubines, he wrestles with an angel thinking he's wrestling his brother and this is, this is a life of faith, wrestling with God until God breaks us. And it's when we're broken by God that we cling to God and God blesses us. Don't despise the suffering that God calls you to because it's in the suffering and the pain that God will save your soul. And then I just want to show you the line of Jacob. I mean, we went over Jacob far too fast, but... These are the 12 tribes of Israel. We come now to the double mention of Esau. As I said, I have no idea why there's a double mention, but Esau was not elect. Maybe God is making a point. I don't know. But he tells us about Esau twice with two superscriptions in the same chapter. These are the generations of Esau. Esau becomes the father of Edom. Edom opposes God. He is the seed of the serpent. Now we get to the generations of Jacob. And this is a part of Genesis that we're all very familiar with. 
What I want you to notice, though, is that although we call these chapters the Joseph novella, or if you read books about this, you're going to see that, the Joseph story, Joseph actually is not the main character of the story. And there's something in the way that the narration is put together that we often miss because we don't have an eye to it. But you have Genesis 1 to 36 that are happening fairly linearly. That is, one thing happens after another, and we're going from past to future in a linear fashion. Now, we get to uh, the, the life of Jacob and his sons, and you have all of the sons in chapter 36 and 37. And then we have chapter 38, which is happening at the same time as Genesis 37 and 39 to 41. So let me just rephrase that. Genesis 38, what you read about there, and just to refresh your memory, Judah goes and gets a wife outside of the family clan, has some sons, wants to give his sons a wife, but God strikes them dead. And then he doesn't want to give his third son to Tamar, and so he sends her back basically in shame. So she dresses up like a prostitute, and Joseph is feeling, ran- or not Joseph, Judah's feeling randy one day and wants to sleep with a prostitute. And so he sleeps with Tamar and gets her pregnant, not knowing that it's his daughter-in-law. She conceives twins, just like Jacob and Esau. And Perez is born, and we're going to talk about him in a minute. That's G- Genesis 38. What in the world is that in the Bible for? Well, that's the main story arc of these chapters in Genesis. Now, the supporting actor, the supporting story is the story of Joseph. And while this is happening in Genesis 38, Joseph is in Egypt in chapters 37, 39 to 41. So those things are happening at the same time. So Joseph is in Potiphar's house. He's falsely accused of adultery. He goes down into prison, meets the baker and the cupbearer, interprets their dreams correctly. Uh, the cupbearer is, is elevated back to a position of prominence, and the baker is uh, impaled. Later, Pharaoh has a dream, and the cupbearer says, oh yeah, I know a guy in prison who can interpret dreams. So Joseph comes, interprets the dreams and becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt in charge of the food storage program. That's all happening chronologically at the same time as Judah is impregnating Tamar. There's many years that are happening there. You have the whole story of of Judah's sons and so on. Parallel chronology. Then they come back together in Genesis 42. That's crucial. Now let's look at it this way. Chapter 37 is about Joseph. Chapter 38 is about Judah. Chapter 39, 40, and 41 is about Joseph. The sheer volume of Joseph's story misdirects our attention to think that he is the main player. But he's not. Judah is. And we see that because although it's lopsided, Judah's story is placed in the middle. And when you're reading Hebrew narrative, the middle is usually the most important. So if you're an ancient reader, you would pick up on it. We miss it because of the volume given to Joseph. Why is there so much about Joseph and only so much about Judah? Because God only says what's necessary to be said. And just the plot of Joseph's life, there's more twists and turns to get us to chapter 42. It's fairly straightforward with Judah. 
But he's central. He's the main character. Why does this matter? Because the generations of Jacob are all about the Lion of Judah. They're not about Joseph. Let me give you some examples. In Genesis 29, Leah and her sister Rachel are having a baby-making competition, and they seem to think that they're most validated if they bear children, that their husband Jacob will love them more if they are producing children. Now, Jacob loved Rachel and kind of despised Leah. Leah was ugly, and Rachel was beautiful. That tells you something about men, right? But it, it's through Leah that the first four sons are born. Reuben, now my husband will love me. And so Reuben means something about that. Simeon, now my husband will love me. Levi, now my husband will love me. But Jacob never loved her. So he, she gives birth to a fourth child and she says, well, enough with that. I'm just going to praise the Lord. And names her son praise the Lord. That's what Judah means praise she gets it her worth her value is not in the love of a husband but in the praising of god isn't that amazing that the son through whom the messianic line is going to come was named praise meaning praise the lord that leah learned who she really was by praising the lord through the son of promise that's one one hint that Judah is the main character. Second, Simeon and Levi's revenge. In chapter 34, we have another weird chapter in the Bible where Dinah is raped by a Shechemite. But the Shechemite falls in love for Dinah, goes to Jacob, says, we really were sorry about that. That was, that was all in bad taste, but we'll make up for it by marrying your daughter, and what's the bride price? And so Simeon and Levi are having none of it, and they say, here's the bride price. Go circumcise yourself. And so they do. The whole town circumcises himself, themselves. So they're in pain. And then Simeon and Levi go in and kill them all. Yeah, on the third day. Good, thank you. And Jacob's upset about that. They say, what? You want us to treat our daughter like a prostitute? But that cuts them out of the will. Reuben's sin in Chapter 35, 22, Reuben sleeps with Jacob's concubine. That cuts him out of the will. This is a really interesting act, though. In Genesis 35, 22, it's just very discreetly said, Reuben went up and lay with his father's concubine. But it's because of that, because I forget the two brothers, but he has two brothers that are born by this concubine, so they're obviously not going to take too kindly to Reuben sleeping with their mom. It's a bit gross. Your brother sleeps with your mom. And so we find out later in the story that Reuben loses table fellowship with his brothers. We also find out that after this happens, Reuben is pretty much disowned by his father. So now Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, comes dancing in to spy on his brothers on behalf of his father. His brothers see him and hate him because he's got this great coat. He's definitely their father's favorite. And he has given bad report to their father before. And they want to kill him. And they would have killed him. Except Reuben says, let's not kill him. Why? Or no, Judah says, let's not kill him. What's profit in it for us? So Judah saves his life. And, and Reuben 
uh, then is not at the table with his brothers while they're eating. And some Ishmaelites come along, and Judah says, no, wait a minute, sorry, it is Reuben. Sorry, this is important. Reuben says, don't kill him. This is important, so I'm going to back up. Reuben says, don't kill him. And the text says why? Because Reuben wanted to restore Joseph to his father. He thinks, if I can tell my dad that I saved his favorite son, I might find favor with my dad. So it's the sin of Reuben, sleeping with his father's concubine, that saves Joseph's life. If, it, if Reuben hadn't slept with his father's concubine, Joseph would have been murdered. Okay. So now he's cut out of table fellowship, and while Joseph is in a pit and his brothers are having lunch, Reuben is somewhere else because he's not allowed to eat with his brothers because they, they don't like him, because they slept with it, he slept with their mom. Some Ishmaelites come along, and Judah says, let's sell him. So they sell him to Egypt. Now Reuben comes back after lunch, and he goes to the pit to get Joseph to get him out of the pit to take him to his father. But because his brothers didn't want to eat with him at lunch, he wasn't there to stop them from selling him into slavery in Egypt. Therefore, he couldn't restore him to his father, and he laments that. So the sin of Reuben, sleeping with his father's concubine, first of all, saves Joseph's life, and then allows for Joseph to be sold into Egypt. See how God is so gracious. He uses this awful sin in order to send Joseph to Egypt. Why does Joseph go to Egypt? To interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Why does Joseph interpret Pharaoh's dreams? To save people from starving, including the family of promise, including the family of Judah, which is the messianic family, to save the family of Jesus Christ, and in so saving the family of Jesus Christ, saving the world. That's amazing that God worked that all out. And so Joseph goes to Egypt, not because he's the main player, but because he has to save the life of the main player, which is Judah. You know, it's interesting to me. God speaks to Joseph in Genesis through dreams. Now, Joseph's namesake in the New Testament, Joseph, who's betrothed to Mary, He's also not the main player of the story, but in the genealogy, we find out that he is the son of David. But he's not the son of David that is the main player of the story. It's his adopted son, Jesus. But isn't it interesting that Joseph in Genesis and Joseph in the gospel saves the messianic line by going to Egypt? And that God speaks to both Josephs through dreams. God spoke to Mary via Gabriel the angel. What, was Gabriel busy that day? No. God is making a point that Joseph, the father of Jesus, is a fulfillment of Joseph, the son of Jacob. And both the, of these Josephs are not the messianic line. They are the protector of the messianic line. And that's their function in salvation history. Moving on, Judah's speech. We get the longest speech in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 44. And in that speech, this is basically what he says. 
Let me be your slave in the place of Benjamin, my father's favorite son. Substitutionary atonement. Judah, the ancestor of Jesus, says, I want to sub in for someone that my father wants to save. Take me, kill me, enslave me so that my brother can go free to the pleasure of my father. <laughs> and then Jacob's blessing in Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12. I've got to read this to you. Genesis 49. This clinches it. If there is any doubt that Judah was the main player, in Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing all of his sons. And to Reuben, he says, you're my firstborn, but you're on a, you are as unstable as water, and you will not have preeminence. Why? Because you went up on your father's bed. You defiled it. You went up on my couch. He's cut out of the will, the blessing, because of his sin. Then Simeon and Levi... Your brothers and your weapons of violence are their swords. I'm not going to choose you to receive the blessing of Abraham, my grandfather, and Isaac, my father, because you killed all of the men in Shechem. Which means then, the blessing falls to the fourthborn. The one that Leah gave birth to and says, I'm not going to seek the favor of my husband. I'm going to praise God. Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Oh, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is the messianic blessing, the blessing of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so the messianic line now comes through Judah and going back to Genesis 38, through Tamar, who disguised herself as a prostitute because her father-in-law shamed her by not giving her his youngest son, and he, in a moment of sin, went to a prostitute to gratify his own sinful desires and conceive twins. And the second-born twin, Perez, becomes the line of Jesus Christ. The main story. Genesis 38. Why does Jacob bless Judah? Well, because the Holy Spirit superintended it, but more than that, because the first three sons disqualified themselves, and I think Judah protected Benjamin. And Ju Jacob says, you're the kind of man I want to lead this family. And notice he says, your brothers shall obey you and all the peoples. In this blessing, the Holy Spirit gives to Judah and his posterity all of the families of the earth. Which brings us to Revelation 5. And with this we'll close. One of the elders said to me, 
weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, Who's the lamb? The lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth, under the earth, and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I believe Jacob blessed Judah in his own humanity. I mean, God had a bigger vision of this. But Jacob blessed Judah because Judah was willing to sacrifice himself for a brother. So he says, you're the lion. And Judah's son does that in the most exponential way, fulfilling the life of Judah saving all the families of the earth as God promised to Abraham. That's Genesis. It's awesome. And we've just begun. I'm going to pray and then we actually did it on time. It's 10 to 10. I'll take some questions and then we'll go at 10. Let me just pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word, for this book. I thank you that you have, you have created the most amazing history for us to look at and to be in awe of. We thank you that the promises that you gave to Abram, unconditional promises have been fulfilled in the son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, the son of David, Jesus the Christ. I pray for these men that they would retain the things that they have learned and even go deeper and to see the glory of the mystery of your word. I pray that I've been faithful to your text. Help us as we journey through the Bible together. In Jesus' name, amen. Any questions? Hayden, yeah. What, the land? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. The question is, why the land? Why is the land so important? Um, I didn't get into it very much for sake of time, but land is crucially important because it is a picture of Eden. So with, even within the Torah, the promised land represents a return to Eden. And that's the structure of the Torah. We're going to see that as we go through. We start in Eden, and at the end of Deuteronomy, we end on the edge of the promised land, ready to go back into Eden. And the way it's described, a land flowing with milk and honey, and it's a good land and all of this. So it's, it's, a, it's a typology of Eden. Now, if a typology of Eden 
that ultimate fulfillment is the new heavens and the new earth. So getting into the promised land and staying there, that becomes paradigmatic for God's blessing, which is fulfilled in God getting us through the Passover of Jesus Christ, we're getting into next week, into the eternal promised land, which is the resurrected universe. So we'll unpack that as we go forward, but did you want to follow up? Does that make sense? So land is more important than, I didn't give it enough time, really, but yeah, Duncan. Yeah, Mount Moriah is the Temple Mount, which later in biblical uh, history becomes Mount Zion, same spot. It, it's exactly the same, yep. Yeah, they believed a lot more strongly in the prophetic aspect of the blessing. So when a, 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 a patriarch was on his deathbed, they would believe, and, and as we see, this was true in the Messianic line, that these men were filled with the Holy Spirit to pronounce the destiny of their sons. So when Isaac blessed Jacob instead of Esau, he, he on the human level had been deceived, and he knew that, but on the spiritual level, he recognized that he had given the blessing in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he wasn't willing to rescind the blessing. So the blessing carried that supernatural weight of God blessing the line of Abraham through uh, the deathbed blessing of the patriarchs. Is that what David did with Solomon? Um, yeah, I, I suppose it is. He... he uh, he definitely did uh, bless Solomon to, to reign in his place. What's really fascinating, we'll get to that. Do you remember Rebecca deceived Isaac into blessing Jacob? Bathsheba comes in with Nathan the prophet and says, don't you remember, David, that you said that my son Solomon would sit on the throne? There's nowhere in the text where we find out that David ever made such a claim. And, and I think that probably David was fine with Ahijah becoming the, the next king. But he's old and senile. He's cold. He can't stay warm. He's got Abishag trying to heap, heat him up. So he's, he's not all there. That's basically what the setting is. And so if you look at the symmetry between the two scenes, what I believe the writer of uh, first Kings 1 is trying to say is that Nathan and Bathsheba deceived David the way Jacob and Rebekah deceived Isaac or deceived David the way yeah Rebekah and Jacob deceived Isaac to give the blessing to the wrong son that's the more you read the Bible altogether and you see these patterns then it you gain some speed to be able to see how do I rightly interpret this it's a good question Yosef. Right. And previous to that, he said, you need to take my bones into the promised land. Wait. 
What's that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think that's a picture of the promise of resurrection unto glory. That he wanted to be in the promised land because he understood the typological significance of it. And so we die in exile. Our bones are buried in this world. The promise is, just like Joseph's bones were taken into the promised lands, our bones will be exhumed and resurrected and our bones won't be buried in the new heavens and new earth. Our bones will actually be reconstituted in the new heavens and new earth. And that's all prophetically pictured in the end of Genesis. Good question. Any more questions? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, it's, that's huge. And Egypt becomes this picture of slavery to sin. Uh, and Jesus, we'll get to this in the New Testament, but Jesus' life, do you, you know how we went through Abraham as a typology of all of salvation history? Jesus' life redoes all of Israel's history. So you, you start to see these patterns and these layers like going to Egypt, I called my son out of Egypt, uh, Hosea 11.1. 1. In Hosea 11.1, 1, that's clearly about Israel. It's not, a, it's not a promise of the future Messiah. And Matthew says that's fulfilled by Jesus going into Egypt. And who takes him to Egypt but Joseph to protect him. Yeah, and then he calls him out. And then, then what does he do? He goes and he's baptized, crosses in the Jordan River, Israel comes out of, out of Egypt, crosses the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And yeah, and so Jesus is baptized, Red Sea experience, wilderness, and then in the Promised Land start his ministry. Like all very intentional shadowing. I don't know. Um, maybe not because we've already skipped over uh, the Adamic covenant, the Noachic covenant, and the Abrahamic covenant. So we've got three covenants already in Genesis. I think the way we have to understand them is that as, as salvation history progresses, there's one plot line that God stamps with covenants. Because then you were going to have the Davidic covenant, or the Mosaic covenant, and then the Davidic covenant. And I think I would see them all as furthering the same promise of salvation that started in Genesis 3.15. Yeah. Yeah, like I need this covenant to progress what I'm doing until we get to the new covenant, which is the fulfillment of all of the covenants, I would say. But I probably, I'm not as strong on covenant theology. I'm not a dispensationalist. I'm right in this crack of, I, I just, I see the covenants as progressing the same story, and I see a difference between all of the old covenant covenants and the new covenant f- kind of encapsulates them all. So, I don't know. Probably I'm not going to give you a very good answer to that. Sorry. So you're, you're more like that shadow than the Leviticus, which is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic 
Yeah, like Leviticus is right now my favorite book because I've studied it most intensely. It we can never say that it's a boring book again. I'm gonna prove it to you. Oh yeah, and I have like, but it is amazing. Oh my goodness. Yeah, Jay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's my Achilles heel. Because I'm willing to see things that aren't explicitly stated. And the reason is the Old Testament is that long and the New Testament is that long. I don't think that the New Testament is an exhaustive one for one, this is how to read the Old Testament. My personal conviction is that the Old or the New Testament gives us the hermeneutical approach for reading our scriptures. And if you look at the early church, Again, I'm in a minority among Reformed evangelicals on this point, so you should know that. But the early church loved allegory. And allegory is a, is a way to say typology, except everyone thinks allegory is so dangerous and awful, so we say typology now, because it's more accepted. But you put your finger on my Achilles heel, I'm allegorizing the Old Testament. But why am I doing that? I'm doing that in Abraham's life, I got my start in G Galatians 4. I don't think for a minute that 
Paul gave us every connecting point, but he gave us enough to say there's an allegorical connection between the life of Abraham and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, going with uh, getting a bride for Isaac, I think that is in Scripture. Genesis 24, two narratives about a man going to a well with eight corresponding plot points. Exodus 2, Moses goes to a well, eight corresponding plot points. You get the beginning of it in 1 Samuel 9, I think, with Saul. He goes to a well, some women come out, he doesn't draw water for them. He aborts the the type scene, which means he's not the man of promise. And then John 4, all eight plot points are there. So you have, I think, good reason through careful Bible reading without being arbitrary uh, to say that Rebecca is is like the woman at the well, a picture of the church. So I, I would say it's there, but it's not explicit. Yeah. I think it's a fair point. Unfortunately, typology and allegory have been abused to the point where we're afraid to even go there. I'm just saying, let the force of the argument and the accumulation of the data be convincing or not convincing. So I think we just have forgotten how to read our Bibles, and we're so afraid of bad allegory that we're not even willing to see good allegory. So let the force of the argument and the text itself to help you to decide. Now, there are governing rules that we could put in place for typology. So there's traditionally three. There has to be a correspondence that's clear, like, like that this action in, in, the, in the picture is a similar action to what's going on in the New Covenant fulfillment. There has to be a, an uh, an increase in intensification. So it's one thing for Isaac to have a wife. It's, it's an increase for Christ to have a wife, to have a bride. And then the third is it has to theologically hold together with the rest of Scripture. So it, academically, you could put governing rules on it. Maybe I'm lazy or maybe I'm sloppy, but I'm just like, if there's persuasive data that the force of the argument says, well, why wouldn't we see that? then I'm just more, more willing to go there. But you're right. Espe- Reformed evangelicals hate this. Like, we, you got to know that. Like, yeah, like, they, they are very afraid of it because it's been abused. So, so like, if, if somebody said, this is the classic one, David picked up five smooth stones from the river. That's the, each stone for one book of the Torah. 
Like, show me the, the proof. Like, there's no proof. That, to me, is like you can dismiss it on the grounds of, that's ridiculous. There's no, there's no depth to it, right? So some types are good and, are, and persuasive. Others are shallow and not persuasive. I would just say, we are missing so much because we're not even looking. So let's look. And I would rather be wrong a couple times to get a hundred nuggets of awesome Right? Like, I would, but that's me. But I, I hear what you're saying, and you guys all need to know that. I, I take greater risks, but my goal is always to be persuasive. Yes? <laughs> We're out of time. I'll stick around, but uh, you guys are free to go.